Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Newsletter Audiocast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is volume 13, issue number 33, corresponding with the week of July 31, 2023. This week, we're going to look at asthma and nutrition part four, Derek Sivers, and part three is the courage to be disliked. All right, let's get into it. Number part four, I mean. The story of the micronutrients. So what do we know about asthma, allergies, and nutrition as it relates to micronutrients? Well, let's think about some of them. One of the most powerful ones is zinc. Zinc is a mineral involved in over 100 enzymatic reactions in the body. It is necessary in adequate levels for cellular metabolism and is critical for the function of our immune system, our skin, and our gut lining. At the cellular level, zinc is necessary for protein synthesis, DNA synthesis, and cellular repair in wound healing. Some common symptoms and diseases related to insufficient zinc include recurrent infections, chronic mild diarrhea and diaper rashes, worsening atopic diseases like eczema and asthma. As it relates to asthma, the data is mixed. Zinc is necessary for proper immune function and likely has a role in asthma by preventing infectious etiologies from triggering an asthma flare. Inadequacies of serum zinc volume can lead to imbalances of immune function, including macrophage activity and T-helper cell function in allergic asthmatics. I could not find any solid data supporting zinc having a direct role in asthma pathophysiology. However, as asthma is often triggered by infections, preventing an asthmatic sufferer from getting sick frequently makes me think zinc is a completely normal thing to add into the system. Food sources of zinc would be the best way to get it. Oysters are our biggest bounty at 74 milligrams per serving, but meats, fish, beans, nuts, and dairy contain 7 milligrams or less per serving. Increase the amount daily of zinc that you think you need or potentially get serum tested to know where you're at. This helps the immune system stay in balance. Taking zinc supplements may also have value if you know your serum red blood cell zinc levels and you want to target that. Another micronutrient is magnesium. And magnesium we know well in the asthma space. Magnesium is a mineral and a major cofactor involved in 300 plus enzymatic reactions in the body. Is necessary in adequate levels for energy production, insulin function, protein synthesis, blood pressure regulation, and muscle and nerve function. That's basically everything in the body. Magnesium is located about half in our bones and the other half in our tissues. Our blood has about only 1% in it. Our kidneys keep the blood level of magnesium in very tight control. Insufficiency and deficiency occur in people who eat highly processed Americanized diets or have gastrointestinal disorders or both. Medicines like N-acid proton pump inhibitors, certain antibiotics, and diuretics will lower your magnesium levels. Magnesium deficiency causes problems with lung function, as well as lowering the levels of circulating vitamin D, which in turn affects immune function and triggers disease risk. Much like a low zinc level, magnesium and vitamin D are necessary to prevent infections that trigger an asthma flare. However, magnesium is the added benefit of relaxing pulmonary smooth muscles. We use it frequently in the emergency setting to save a life when someone is dying from severe asthma. It is obvious that this is a mineral that is insanely important to us in the asthmatic space. Where do we get it? The best healthy sources of magnesium are zinc, I'm excuse me, are spinach, nuts, beans, oatmeal, avocado, soy, potato, and bananas. Fish, chicken, and beef have some reasonable amounts of magnesium as well. In order to absorb magnesium well, you will need vitamin D and B6, as well as selenium and the amino acid taurine. This, of course, happens naturally when you eat vegetables, fruits, and get adequate sun exposure. 
To me, the take-home point here is pretty simple. If you feel mentally or physically tight, you are likely low in magnesium. If you are struggling from more asthma, you are likely low in magnesium. Load up on nuts, or organic spinach, salmon, organic soybeans, other kinds of beans. And if that doesn't work, take magnesium supplements. I like magnesium torate or glycinate or potentially magnesium uh, citrate if you have constipation issues. So what about others? Vitamin D. Let's think about that nutrient. Vitamin D technically is sort of like a hormone, but it's still a vitamin considerably. Uh, it's a fat-soluble vitamin. But vitamin D, along with vitamin A and commensal gut bacteria, promote the maturation of the immune system's police system called T-regulator cells via the gene FOXP3 or forkhead BOXP3. Vitamin D is arguably the most important micronutrient for human health and asthma. It is one of the four fat-soluble vitamins and is an added benefit of being naturally synthesized by our skin exposure to the sun, UVB rays. And it can be stored in the, in the fat for months. The big issue surrounding vitamin D and asthma is that humans are avoiding the sun and spending way too much time indoors. We're not synthesizing adequate amounts of natural vitamin D in our skin, and this is putting downward pressure on our immune system in a negative way. The T regulator cells are critical for dampening inflammation and immune activity post-pathogen killing. Unchecked or excess inflammation becomes a main driver of asthmatic disease decline as it does for many diseases. In the most recent published literature, vitamin D appears to reduce the number and severity of exacerbations requiring steroid use or emergency room visits and infectious diseases. So you, there's a really nice summary by Pfeiffer et al. in the journal Chest that goes through a lot of this information. Highly encourage you to read it. I'm in the middle of a deep dive and have been for many years now in immunology. And for me, all the positive mechanisms for the beneficial effects of vitamin D in human disease, especially asthma, make me wish everyone could get and does get tested for vitamin D insufficiency and then is supplemented appropriately or better yet, gets sun exposure. The current general health recommendations are to avoid the sun because of skin cancer risks. For me, these recommendations are unhelpful. The goal of skin cancer prevention should be to avoid sunburns, which is DNA damaging and noted risk factor for cancer. Exposure of 15 to 40 minutes of direct sunlight a day for most people without sunscreen has never been shown in any way to be dangerous, but does have the added benefit of giving us vitamin D, which is well known to be very helpful. Aside from sun exposure, where do we get vitamin D? Food and supplements. Food sources of vitamin D are dairy, fish, eggs, mushrooms, and fortified foods like orange juice and cereals. Wouldn't recommend orange juice, too much sugar and fructose and all things related to that that we know of, but the other things are reasonable. A diet that includes oily fish like roughly three ounces of salmon will provide 400 units of vitamin D. Some other caveats are to remember that your skin color dictates how fast you can make D. Darker skin equals more time to generate adequate D and lighter skin equals the converse. Between the months of November and April, it is quite difficult for most individuals to generate adequate D from the sun, regardless of skin color, in mid to northern United States. Dark skin color is an advantage from preventing skin cancer, but unfortunately is a disadvantage from developing natural vitamin D. And the flip side, again, conversely, white, whiter skin color or lighter skin color is a disadvantage from uh, developing cancer risk, but an advantage for developing vitamin D sufficiency. The genetics of all these things are related to where our ancestors developed their historical growth. Was it around the equatorial region or farther north? And that dictated skin pigmentation. 
From a supplemental perspective, I do not recommend taking higher doses of vitamin D without blood level monitoring. Our consumption of vitamin D can be toxic as it is a fat-soluble and accumulative uh, vitamin in cells. Symptoms and findings of toxicity include hypercalcemia, which is excess calcium in the blood, bone pain, kidney stones, calcium deposits in the body. Diseases that could increase the risk of toxicity include sarcoidosis, hyperparathyroidism, tuberculosis, lymphoma, and cancers. For me, there's only one way to know if you have toxicity to vitamin D, and that's to check blood levels. Children that are increased risk for insufficiency or deficiency states of vitamin D have sun avoidance behavior, which is highly problematical now with all the indoor screen time, especially with video game activities in boys. Issues with intestinal fat malabsorption, that would be vitamin D being fat soluble, so A, D, E, and K would also be in that issue. Intestinal dysbiosis, inflammatory bowel disease, eating disorders, celiac disease, and disorders of bowel production or pancreatic enzyme production, chronic kidney disease, and the aforementioned magnesium deficiency. Okay, what's next? How about omega-3 fats and omega-6 fats? Omega-3 fats are super important. Fish oil, flax oil, wild-caught fish, kelp, seaweed, grass-fed meats are all the rage now from the health-conscious consumer. There is good reason for this shift in consumerism. These foods are all loaded with health-promoting omega-3 fats. On the other hand, seed and vegetable oils are the major source of omega-6 fatty acids. Omega-3 and 6 fatty acids are a type of fat called polyunsaturated fatty acid, which in chemistry terms means that there are at least two or more double bonds located on the carbon chain. This piece of information is important because this chemical structure makes it more unstable when exposed to heat, oxygen, or chemicals which in turn can, on occasion, make the fatty acid unhealthy. Mechanistically, omega-3 and 6 fats are used by the body in cell membranes and as a precursor for a chemical pathway called prostaglandin, which are pro- and anti-inflammatory chemicals released during injury, infection, and repair. It's commonly understood that omega-3 fats are the precursor foods for anti-inflammatory cascade, while the omega-6 fats on the other side of the equation promoting inflammation, which again is not inherently bad when normal and used for injury. They share a set of enzymes in their conversion to their beneficial end products, and both are necessary in moderation. During my training in Arizona, Dr. Andrew Weil would talk about the history of omega-3s. And it was believed that humans consumed roughly a ratio of three to one or omega-6 to three fats in three to one ratio. Currently, it is more akin to 30 to one based on the voluminous rise in processed foods with seed and vegetable oils and the decrease in the consumption of omega-3 oils as fish. Based on this change in substrate ratios, we would assume that the flood of omega-6 fats would push the prostaglandins equation toward increased inflammation or arachidonic acid production. Based on the mechanisms and natural logic, it would seem prudent that following the older paradigm of 3 to 1 ratio of PUFAs or polyunsaturated fatty acids would hold benefit for reducing inflammation asthmatics. However, the data regarding asthma and supplemental polyunsaturated fatty acids is mixed at best. Dr. Julia's Nature Reviews article has a nice summary of the effects at the biochemical level for inflammation. In two recent reviews of the current data, supplementation with omega-3 fatty acids was neutral in benefit. Boiling it all down... For me, I resolved to follow the fish. Humans for thousands of years ate more fish and less omega-6 fatty acids in their diet 
and it's highly likely that the three to one ratio of the six to three PUFAs is more in line with human physiology and history. Mechanistically, again, this makes complete sense to me. So I go with Occam's razor. The easier route seems to be more likely the route that we should follow. Right now, we're in a much more complex route, and I don't think that makes any sense. I recommend that all of my asthmatic patients reduce the volume of processed foods, which is a major human source of omega-6s, and I also recommend that they consume small oily fish as mackerel, sardines, and salmon, which most won't do, so I then recommend taking fish oil as a supplement in safe doses based on age, and may turn out that this is the way we should be doing it for everybody. But for me, it's balancing the polyunsaturated fatty acids and that ratio that makes the most sense to me. Section two, Derek Sivers. He had an article that he wrote recently that I loved. It's, and he writes, quote, when I was 17, I was driving recklessly and crashed into an oncoming car. I found out that I broke the other driver's spine and she would never walk again. I carried that burden with me forever and felt so horrible about it for so many years that at 35 years of age, I decided to find this woman and apologize. I found her name and address, went to her house, knocked on the door, and the middle-aged woman answered. And he goes on to state in this quote that I highly recommend you read that what had happened was was very different than what he thought. And he had carried a burden that he unnecessarily had to carry. And I'll let you read the full post. It's on the newsletter link to get the whole story as I did not copy and paste the entire article as he had written it. But for me, it was a very powerful little story of thinking that you understood something about an event, the story that you made up about it, and then you carried the burden of that guilt and shame related to it, but the reality was vastly different. All of us should heed the truth in Derek's words. The past is just the past. Quote, you can change your history. The actual factual events are such a small part of it. Everything else is perspective, open for reinterpretation. The past is never done. End quote. Most of the stuff he writes is excellent. Highly encourage you to read Derek Sivers' books. All right, section three, a review of the book, The Courage to be Disliked by Ichiro Kishimi and Fumitaki Koga. This is a great book. I just picked it up a few weeks ago because Derek Sivers had recommended it. The book is quite an intriguing ride that challenges some of our deeply ingrained beliefs about life and happiness. The authors use Aldarian psychology as the basis for the discussion of past ideology being unrelated to current dilemmas unless we choose to use or associate them. Dr. Alfred Adler was a contemporary of the psychologists Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, but diverged from their paths of the psychological underpinnings of disease. The format of this book is super intriguing, as it's not your typical self-help guide that spoon-feeds you solutions. Instead, it's presented as a Socratic dialogue between philosopher and a young seeker of truth and wisdom. You get to be the fly on the wall as the philosopher and the Padawan go to and fro with the exchange. The theme revolves around the significance of one's personal choices and the subjective interpretation of events. The authors drive home the idea that our past does not dictate our present, and we have the power to transform ourselves by choosing a different perspective on life. As a physician, I resonate with this perspective deeply. It empowers us to take responsibility for our actions and create our own paths, regardless of our past traumas or societal expectations the latter being really problematical now. It is the antithesis of today's victim-based societal leanings. The past is the past to be witnessed, learned from, grown from, but moved away from. 
This is not to say that you're supposed to bury the past in a forgotten part of your brain or body. It is understood, witnessed, and past. Very different. The philosopher and student tackle the concept of social interest, which is a cornerstone of Alderian thought. It's essentially the idea of living for the greater good, understanding and connecting with others rather than being fixated on seeking validation and approval from them. Again, I identify with this. This is the antithetical to the entire social media ecosystem that preys on our youth through seeking validation in order to feel whole and emotionally stable. In this modern world where social media can dominate our lives, this notion is revolutionary. It's about being true to yourself, even if it means going against the grain and embracing the courage to be disliked. The book also delves into the dichotomy of superiority and inferiority complexes. The philosopher believes that both stem from a lack of self-acceptance. And it's only by accepting ourselves unconditionally that we can break free from these destructive mindsets. Embracing our imperfections and vulnerabilities is a strength in and of itself. The Courage to be Disliked is a book that challenges conventional wisdom and societal norms, something I am deeply committed to now as the fabric of normalcy is being challenged and fragmented in more ways than I can count. It's a reminder that we don't need everyone's approval to live fulfilling lives. It's about finding the courage to be true to ourselves, regardless of the external noise. It's about not being a victim. It's about speaking the truth, your truth, no matter what it is. And that is a powerful lesson worth embracing. So if you're seeking a fresh perspective on personal growth and a philosophical exploration of human behavior, this book is a valuable addition to your reading list. This book also happens to align nicely with the books The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, but in way less number of pages. Okay, that's it this week. Song of the Week is Runaway Train by Soul Asylum. And the last thing I'm going to leave you with is this. Free thoughts. Let your kids play. We have to stop worrying so much about their learning school-based material and worry more about their connections to others in nature. Nature is an amazing teacher, and the act of listening and witnessing will teach your child so much more than one more lesson in colors and numbers when they're young. School will teach them the fundamentals. Our job as parents is to love, provide boundaries, provide support, and let them play. Be the gardener, not the carpenter. The only caveat here is to read to them and with them often at night, especially before bedtime. These minutes together are a connection of the soul, a connection of emotions, and a connection of the brain. And they're a special way for them to grow emotionally. All right, folks, that's it for this week. Hug your kids and have a fabulous day. The information provided in this newsletter audio cast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute advice and or treatment provided by your physician or the healthcare professional. It's not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter audio cast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.